Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss Chinese President Xi Jinping's much-anticipated visit to Moscow and analyse Vladimir Putin's weekend trip to Crimea and Mariupol. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists on the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 20th of March, one year and 24 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, and our foreign correspondent, James Kilner. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the war. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So what have we got today? President Xi is in Moscow, about to meet... Putin, he's uh, President Xi has already said that the meeting is going to uh, herald a new era and new momentum between China and Russia. Um, it's a three-day three-day visit. The British Prime Minister's spokesman has said we hope President Xi uses this opportunity to press President Putin to cease bombing Ukrainian cities, hospitals, schools, to halt some of these atrocities that we are seeing on a daily basis. Putin has already said in advance he's looking forward to meeting his good old friend and um, looking forward to forging ahead a new chapter of their friendship, cooperation and common development. The only thing I know, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but the only thing I would note before we before we move on is that in statements in, ad, in advance ahead of the visit, she also said, quote, China and Russia are committed to no alliance, no confrontation and not targeting any third party in developing our ties. So, Yet again, we see just a, a little bit of wiggle room there. We know she is not happy with the direction the war's going or the length of time it's taken. And they do give themselves this this little bit of wiggle room. So they're very obviously there stating there's no no alliance and they're not into targeting any third party. So, you know, interesting. It'll be interesting to see what, what comes out of it. And we'll discuss this more a bit later. Secondly, today's a British defence intelligence report talks about the fighting around the, the town of Avdivka, which is to about 35, 40 k's south or south-southwest of Bakhmut. It's, they're saying that Russia is making incremental gains there. But, I mean, 
not not anywhere else. So not around Villadar, not in Bakhmut. But yes, the the the, the violence continues there. I think we're going to hear more reports from there a little bit later. Also, uh, on a on a related issue, the provision of weapons. James Heapy, who's the Britain's Armed Forces Minister, so the the minister underneath the Defence Secretary. So Ben Wallace is in is in charge. James Heapy is the kind of second in command of the MOD. Um, he said that Britain is ready to help Poland fill its air defence gaps caused by the Polish offer to send some MiG-29 jets to Ukraine, although he said Poland has not yet made such requests. So Mr Heapy was speaking to German newspaper Die Welt, and he said that we'd be able to help fill such gaps as we had done, such as when Poland sent T-72 tanks. Britain made the offer on Challenger 2 tanks. Mr Heapy said, quote, we will look very positively at a Polish request to fill in the gaps that have ever arisen, unquote. Now, obviously, no jets have been promised. This could be an extension of the air policing mission, the kind of NATO's air policing mission. There could be a temporary stationing of, of RF jets, not not inconceivable. There could be deals over air defence assets. So, I mean, him him saying that if Poland gave up some of its MiG-29s to Ukraine, Britain would be ready to help out to fill the gap. That doesn't immediately mean that jets are on the way. And if we need to put this one out of, you know, put it to bed any more. On Friday, I was enjoying a St. Patrick's Day beer with a, a senior government advisor. And we were talking about this because, you know, that's the kind of racy chat we get up to in the pub on Fridays these days. And he said, there's no no fudging way typhoons are going to Ukraine. And I, I might have invented the word fudging there. But yeah, very clear from the, the advisor that, that jets are not going. It's not going to be like like for like any British support in the air slash air defence arena there. Um, finally, before I take a little break, the uh, European Union had a meeting today in Brussels about artillery shells. They've agreed a €2 billion Euro plan to replenish national stocks and, and basically ramp up Europe's defence industry. Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, was there. And the EU is aiming to provide Ukraine with a million 155 mil artillery shells a year. So 155 is the NATO standard calibre for artillery. The, the former Soviet and Russian stocks and a lot of lot of Ukrainian stocks when they started this phase of the war were 152 mil. So two mils it makes a hell of a difference. It's a completely different nature of ammunition. So EU is aiming to provide Ukraine with 1 million 155 shells a year. That equates to roughly half Ukraine's current rate of use, which we think is about 6,000 a day. And we think they're limiting down to that. They would they would like to use a lot more. And then there's about three times that amount coming back from the other side. So Russia, we think, are, are you know, 18 to 20,000 plus artillery shells a day. Ukraine's able to respond on about 6,000 a million a year promised from the from the EU would be about half that. So, you know, it, it's a good start, a long way to go. Other pledges needed. Um, I know Britain is looking at ramping up production. Let, what so-called um, letters of intent have been sent from the MOD to BAE Systems, the, the big arms manufacturer here in the UK, not yet backed up by actual contracts. So, you know, as you'd expect, quite rightly, BAE Systems are only going to take so much at risk. They're only going to shift their well shift patterns and put put more people on on those production lines when they've got a really firm idea that the orders are coming. So we're moving in the right direction, but there's still still a lot more to go. A few other bits and pieces for later, but I'll take a pause there. Thank you very much for that, Dom. Would you like to talk us through some of the notes we've made on the grain deal? Well, let's quickly cover the grain deal because the whole she visiting Moscow, I think, is tied in with Putin 
going to Crimea and Mariupol. I think he's, you know, he's trying to show his big boy pants to President Xi and, uh, and that he's not scared of the ICC, again, which we'll talk about later. So they're all connected. So let me just do the grain deal. So a ship has arrived today in Kenya carrying 30,000 tonnes of wheat under the Grain from Ukraine programme. The ship was met by Kenya's deputy president. This is the, the fifth such load since the programme started last November. Now, before this phase of the war, Africa was importing around about $1.4 billion worth of wheat from Ukraine. And the rough value of today's shipment is about $145 million, so a tenth of that. I say this is just one, one ship. There have been five so far. So again, moving in the right direction, but very down on, um, much down on where it had been. Now, the programme so far has delivered over 140,000 tonnes of Ukrainian wheat to African nations. That's about half of what the annual total was before the attack last February. Um, so we're still very, the whole thing is very vulnerable. Andrei Yermak, who's the head of the Ukrainian presidential office and chairman of the International Coordination Group for the Prevention of Hunger, said, quote, Today's shipment to Kenya cements our ongoing commitment to tackle forced famine across Africa's most vulnerable nations. While we continue to defend our nation against external aggression, we have not forgotten our humanitarian obligation towards our allies in time of need, unquote. Now, grain, it's a, it's a very heavily politicised area. The recent grain deal was rebrokered uh, last week. Originally, it was 120 days. It was brokered by the UN and Turkey last July, renewed in November. It expired the weekend just gone, on Saturday just gone. It would all automatically be updated and extended for another 120 days unless one of the parties objected and Russia's envoy to the UN, Vasily Nebenzia, he did formally object. They they settled on a 60-day deal. So just, again, good, but we're going to go around this boy again, no pun intended, in 60 days. But Nebenzia said the, mechan- the memorandum is simply not working. He said the UN had to had to recognise that the mem- that the the memorandum has no leverage to exempt Russian agricultural export operations from Western sanctions. Now, I would say, well, that's that's the whole point of sanctions, mate. Uh, so tough, but that's just my very <laughs> cack-handed diplomacy. The U.S. ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas Greenfield, she she said that Russia's food exports are at least as high as they were in the pre-war levels, or certainly before February last year. And she said, uh, quote, when we hear the Russian government say they are being held back from exporting grain and fertiliser, the numbers show it's just not true. We've gone to extraordinary lengths to communicate the clear carve-outs for food and fertiliser to governments and to the private sector. Simply put, sanctions are not the issue. So Russia's keen to frame this or, or saying to countries across Africa and elsewhere around the world, but specifically Africa, look at what Ukraine is doing to you over over grain. If it was up to us, you'd have all the grain you want, guys. But, you know, it's those pesky Ukrainians, again, the Nazis and drug dealers and all the rest of it, who aren't allowing the grain out. That I mean, that that is not the case. And I think it's good there that US Ambassador Linda Thomas-Grenfield put it, put it starkly and said it's not, sanctions are not the issue here. Again, the numbers are good. The, the amount of grain that is getting out, those numbers I said earlier on, we're about half of where we were in the, the annual total before the February invasion last year. But so that's, I mean, it's, that's on track for about the right number per year, but it's, it's very vulnerable and it's all dependent on Russia not, not coming up with another reason to delay the extension or to, to try and bargain over how much it can be extended by. And that's before we even get to safe passage of, of ships through the Black Sea. 
But you know, in and of itself, today that's that's good news that a ship thirty thousand tons of wheat have made it into Kenya. You mentioned at the beginning of your update the update from Avdivka, uh, the the slight Russian advance there. Uh, is there much to read into that? Um, is it just one to keep an eye on for now? Well, I mean, the the line of control there uh, across the whole f- front is extremely violent, as we as we've seen for weeks now. I, I said last week we should uh, keep an eye on the colleagues at the, the Transatlantic Dialogue Centre. They put out a weekly report which shows all the locations of, of shelling and, and you can see the, the, the comparative weight of of shelling. So we know that around that sector it is still very, very violent. The lines are hardly moving. I don't think either side has the combat mass at the moment to, to conduct a... Well, they do not want to... Ukraine does not want to commit armoured forces at the moment. I think they're still waiting to, to increase their mass. I think Russia is not capable of of putting together armoured formations in any great strength. So tanks and infantry and armoured personnel carriers, engineers and all that, all the, the whole bits and pieces. So I think what they're left up with is artillery duels and, as we see from Russia, running at the Ukrainian lines. We carried reports over the, over the weekend that um, on the back of a BBC report that actually Russia is is now charging into the the sites of Maxim machine guns that are over 100, 100 years old. Ukraine have got these these machine guns, um, and they work they work a treat. I mean, heavy machine guns. There's there's not an awful lot that can go wrong with them. I mean, this thing's a beast. It has to be water cooled. I mean, it's, it's like you know a lot of most weapons are air cooled. This thing's this thing's got its own radiator with it. It's just just a, quite a quite a beast. But unlike Russia getting T sixty two tanks out of storage, and and they're just not fit for the modern battlefield. When you're talking something much lower, of much lower technical requirement, like a heavy machine gun, the Maxim works, and they're using that up and down the line. So it's extremely violent. But Ukraine seem to be holding firm. Russia are running forward, pushing their people forward to try and find gaps in the line. And therefore, what we see is a lot of shelling, the occasional sort of push and shove, and lines moving a few hundred meters. But really, no, no great, no great tactical success. Certainly not an operational breakthrough and you know you can forget the strategy for a moment which uh, which we might come on to shortly about mr mr putin in um in mariupol dom any final thoughts from you before we talk to james yeah i mean we do need to touch on the icc and and putin in in crimea but i'll make it i'll make it quick so over the weekend putin visited crimea and then went up to mariupol so in crimea he visited the children's palace and um and then did you know, did some other stuff so there's two things going on here. I think the, the whole thing about children is that he's thumbing his nose to the to the International Criminal Court, who've put a warrant out for him for the crimes against humanity and the for the alleged illegal deporting of children from occupied areas of of uh, Ukraine. So he went to Crimea and then he flew up to to Mariupol, and the Kremlin installed governor of Sevastopol in in Crimea said, "quote Everything everything had been prepared for a video conference. When before you know it, he comes down here personally by car. He was at, at the wheel." The president knows how to surprise. It's like, yeah, I mean, yes, fine. He does know how to surprise. He, he told everyone in the Kremlin to be strolling around Kiev this spring. So it certainly has come as a surprise that he's that he's you know, walking around Sevastopol and he's bogged down in the in the Donbass. But later on, he then flew by helicopter to Mariupol. And I think this is all about messaging President Xi to say, look, you know, firstly, I'm not scared of the ICC. Secondly, I can go where I like. I'm, I can uh, stroll around these new these areas that are that are now Russian annexed. More of that later. So I think I think this is all to do with Xi's visit. But a Kremlin spokesman said told Russia's state owned news agency TASS that, that Putin had been examining the coastline. Like, OK, fine. Again, 
probably wondering where the amphibious assault is going to come from. But I think this is all posturing. This is this is all Putin saying he can he can do whatever he likes wherever wherever he likes in the small piece of real estate that is under under Russian control at the moment in Ukraine. But separately, the ICC. Now we've got to we've got to touch on this. The International Criminal Court on Friday, the ICC that's based in the Hague issued arrest warrants for Putin and Maria Lavova Belova, who's the country's commissioner for children's rights. Both are accused of responsibility for illegally deporting children from occupied areas of Ukraine, as I said. Now, these warrants were initially, as they all always are, initially going to be secret, but the court said it was making them public to raise awareness of the continuing crimes. Um, I mean, we've reported on this before, and we, we will continue to do so, the, the forcible transferring of thousands of Ukrainian children from occupied areas to Russian territory, placing many with Russian families, trying to sort of rub out their their identity, their history. Now, Russia, like many other countries, including America, has not signed up to the ICC. So how do you, what teeth has it got? There have been ad hoc tribunals established in the past over, for example, Rwanda and Yugoslavia in the 90s. The Yugoslav president there, Slobodan Milosevic, he was taken to The Hague and he died in custody i think of a heart attack but uh, but yes yeah, so he he was did not see the trial through but you know he didn't enjoy his freedom now they were both set up under the un security council russia has a veto there so we're not expecting any ad hoc tribunal now they could go through the un general assembly there could be a massive diplomatic effort um, to try and get something going through the through the general assembly where every country has a vote and there is no veto but of course there are lots of countries who are not keen on extending um, the power of international courts, so that might not come off. And of course, if it was tried and it failed, that would be a massive sort of propaganda coup for for Russia. But the crime that they've been accused of, the de- deporting of children, that that is covered by the court. The court does have the ICC does have jurisdiction over that, so they can try him. The issue is getting him there. Any signatories to the Rome Statute, that's what you know, set it up in 1998, any signatories, 123 countries around the world who have signed up to that, are expected to grab any indicted alleged war criminals if they set foot on their, on their territory and hand them over to the Hague. So let's look at that. There's a summit in South Africa, a BRICS summit. What's that? Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. BRICS summit in South Africa in August. It will be, this is going to be a headache for Putin, for South Africa and for others about what what happens here does he does he try it over the weekend the the president's spokesperson in South Africa said that South Africa was aware of its legal obligation said we as a government are cognizant of our legal obligation however between now and the summit we will remain engaged with various relevant stakeholders so South Africa are going oh my god what the hell is what are we going to do um between now and then, of course, Putin is going to do everything he can to discredit the International Criminal Court. He's going to say it's a Western puppet. It's got no jurisdiction. I'm just wondering, and I really want to speak, when you want to hear from James on this, is Putin going to try his luck? So Tajikistan, for example, they are a, they're a signatory to, to the ICC. Um, would Putin push his luck by visiting Tajikistan? I would would Tajikistan then then say right we've got you we're going to hand you over to to the Hague what kind of diplomatic perhaps military and certainly economic blowback would there be for them so will Putin do that to test the waters big a big risk because they they might do otherwise you know what's he going to do is he going to see out his days in Russia China North Korea and the other sort of global beauty spots that he'd be able to to go to and separately what other what other messages are going on here what's the messages to what's what message is being sent to others in the Kremlin regime, because they want to enjoy their life elsewhere. They want to go and you know sell yachts out of I won't 
won't mention any country because I'm getting myself into trouble. But, you know, they want to have an international lifestyle. So they might be thinking, well, hey, God, if this is coming down the tracks, is this yet another, does this chip away yet again at the credibility of the, of the guy in charge? Are they all going to be fir- firmly backing him when the, um, when the wheels start to come off? And finally, what message does this send to those in the international community who may, may have tried to formulate the diplomacy around any kind of future with Putin? He's now going to be an indicted alleged war criminal. Is there any face left to save for him? Any reason not to try and humiliate him? And I'm looking at France here, obviously. You know, is this the turning point when France and President Macron turns his back on trying to have any kind of future with Putin and the, the, the don't humiliate him, safe, all that kind of stuff that we've talked about at length. Is this the moment when France says, right, you know, you're done, mate, and they go all in on a much more muscular uh, diplomacy and, and military and humanitarian aid? I don't, I don't know, but we will definitely watch it. As much as you could say the ICC has no teeth and there's and there is a very, very, very slim chance that Putin will ever go to The Hague and, and serve a sentence. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have huge power for all the other reasons we've just spoken about. So, James, I've kind of put it all out there from from the mind of Marge. I'd be really interested in your thoughts. Hi, Dom. So, yeah, if, if that story broke, as, as you know, on Friday afternoon, just before the weekend. Um, and it really I think it really took the Russian and the Russians and the Kremlin by surprise. And of course, it does throw up lots of. I mean, I mean, Russia's not a signatory to to the treaty which governs the ICC, so so it doesn't have to play ball like that. But in terms of travel for Putin, which is already very crimped and and very uh, difficult for him to do, it's it's become an even bigger headache. Um, as you mentioned, Tajikistan and South Africa are certainly on his list of places to go to coming up, and my sources in Dushanbe. Uh, the capital of Tajikistan told me that a delayed trip to Dushanbe, which meant to happen in September, had been sort of penciled in for sometime later this month, or the beginning of April. And now there's a big question mark whether that can happen. Uh, Tajikistan is important to Russia because they've got a huge military base there. It's on the border with Afghanistan, and it's one of the few places uh, left for Peter May can really go and posture as an international statesman. As you mentioned, the BRICS summit in Safka is also incredibly important for Kremlin to, to look like an international player. And even today, Putin is hosting via uh, teleconference, but he, the, in, in Moscow, there's, there's a lot of African dignitaries and they've been listening to Putin today talking about uh, Africa and a multipolar world and um, Russia's leadership. And that all becomes a huge headache now for, the, for Russia after this. ICC ruling and, and uh, Putin being termed a war criminal. Also, interestingly, today as well, I thought it was rather pointed. I saw that Lvova Belova, the 38-year-old Kremlin children's chief, really, personally appointed by Putin and also uh, indicted by the ICC. She said today that 380 children, 380 more children, had just been moved from what she called New Russia. That's a term for occupied areas of Ukraine into mainland Russia and they've been given and found new fossil parents. So despite the ICC ruling, this is still continuing. James, can I ask, as you said, this news broke on Friday and you've been working over the weekend writing up what Vladimir Putin was doing down in Mariupol. Can you talk us through his itinerary? Where where did he go and, and why? 
Hi, David. Yeah, again, he had a very busy weekend, and I think this is all ahead of Xi's, President Xi of China's visit today, which is happening now. His first visit to Moscow since 2019, and likely to be a huge boost for Putin. Validation and support from China will come will be a huge relief for him. It was only about six months ago we had to publicly apologise to President Xi for his invasion at a testy... Uh, summit in um, Samarkand and Uzbekistan. So he had a busy weekend reacting to the ICC and and sort of prepping up ahead of Xi's visit. So he needed to do two things. He needed to respond and he needed to look strong for Xi. And the first thing he did, he popped up on about lunchtime or just after lunch, London time in Crimea. He went to have a look around what what's sort of called a children's palace these are sort of like education centers boarding schools all meshed together a brand new one that he commissioned in may 2021 ahead of his invasion of uh, ukraine and this is a byzantine style building which can sleep up to 300 children etc and then he was giving a tour of that and it that uh, that very much felt it's not operational yet, this uh, education centre, but it very much felt like this was a response to being called a child abductor by the ICC. You know, he was not going to be pushed around by the ICC. He was going to go and sort of stand his ground and show that he was still in favour of this transfer of, of children from Ukraine to, to Russia. A really important part of this story is that Crimea and Sebastopol has been a huge cog in this machine which has sent thousands of children from places like Mariupol and Donetsk to Russia so there's a high chance that this education center when it starts to become operational and it will be seen and I think that'll be a new story we'll see a lot of Ukrainian children going through it so here was Putin really showing to the rest of the world that he that he still supported this program and then and then he appears to have flown by helicopter to Mariupol which is um, in sort of the Donetsk region of of Ukraine on the on the shore of the Sea of Azov shore coastline, and he landed around dusk it seemed, and then he there's videos of him driving himself through the city of Mariupol, which his military destroyed about a year ago, um, and as he's driving, he's driving a Toyota Land Cruiser by the look of it. As he's driving, he's getting a briefing from one of his deputy prime ministers about the reconstruction effort. And this was his first time, this is really important, this was his first time to part of Ukraine that his forces had captured since the invasion of February. So here he was, two days before President Xi turns up, posturing in Mariupol, of all places, where some of his worst war crimes were committed. He's driving himself around, he's being the strong man, he's, he's showing he's evading uh, West intelligence, the West intelligent eyes, he's trying to give them slip um, by driving himself around, or at least that's what his, his acolytes said afterwards, you know, how clever it was that he evaded all these Western intelligence satellites, etc., and he'd gone undercover and made this trip to Mariupol. And then he turns up um, at this uh, residence, residential block, which has just been re redeveloped, and he speaks to about, I don't know, there's a group of like five or seven or eight, people who, who live there and they're overwhelmed with joy about seeing Putin one of them starts crying another one starts saying this is the best thing that's ever happened to me when you've seen you on TV another one says oh this is a you know I had nothing and now I have a wonderful piece of paradise thank you very much 
and in the background, his security detail are all hovering around, whispering into their mics and telling people where to stand, etc. And you can vaguely hear a heckler, you know, warning people that this is all a lie, etc. So this is very much picked in really sort of... Do, it's it's almost like a return to form, this is Putin. This is what he did a lot of before COVID, so before 2020. He did a lot of sort of posturing with people and, and, and meeting people, looking like the strong man in photographs, etc. And, and here he was doing it again at, a, at this very important pointed juncture of the war and of, frankly, world affairs. I expect some really big news to come out of this meeting with Xi and Peter was very much prepping, prepping up the land. Thank you very much, James. Just quickly, something you said there I thought was very interesting, that, I mean, previously we've talked about Zelensky going to the front unexpectedly and popping up and having a news conference, and we'd noted that Putin hadn't done the same thing, that he was stuck in the Kremlin seemingly so far from his forces, whereas Zelensky was quite happy to you know, get, get, get close, talk to the soldiers, you know, was at ease with people around him. Dom, I just wanted to ask you whether that struck you over the weekend, that, the, that this, as James said, is this a bit of a return to form for, for Putin? And might that herald something else in the, in the future, that he now seems a bit more comfortable to go, go to the front, go to, well, not this, sorry, this isn't the front, but go to ex- occupy? I wouldn't, I'd caution against drawing those conclusions just yet i mean this is this is one one visit in you know relatively safe area for him i don't think it's comparable to zelensky going to bakhmut when you are hundreds of meters from from direct line of sight arguably or certainly in range of direct fire weapons you don't need artillery and, and what have you so um yeah, you could you could say it was a, it was a bit of a coup for him to get there without uh, without Ukraine finding out about it. I mean, whether or not they'd be able to hit, they wouldn't have been able to hit necessarily Sevastopol and uh, Mariupol, even if they knew he was going. So I wouldn't draw too much into it. If it is it going to augur a, a, a an increased a sort of tempo of, of his visits, visits then maybe, and um, I'm sure the Ukrainians would love that if it if it was. James, can I just ask you a question? Could you just, the, the discussion about the children, could you just remind us where this comes from? I mean, how, how are these children able to be deported from Ukraine? I remember some of them were, were uh, they were offered, the parents were offered, and a lot of the, the sort of orphanages and what have you were offered. The, the Russians said, we'll take the children to, get, to keep them safe. But not all of them. Can you explain why so many children are, are, have been able to be moved to Russia? There's various methods the Russian forces use. I mean, they do go to orphanages and just take the children. They sign them off, etc., and they take them. Um, and then they do approach the parents, and they either they either tell them, you know, it's really dangerous here. You've got to evacuate the children. You'll see them again in in a month's time when things calm down. Or they say we need to take your children to, uh, you know, last summer. We're going to take them to a, a, like a summer camp, a pioneer style summer camp. You'll see them afterwards, and then they they make it very hard for the parents to go and pick them up or uh, or reconnect, or they just frankly, in in some cases, some some of the parents are very poor and and can't really in a time of war, frankly, look after the children properly, and 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 they say, well, if we take your child, we will ensure they have enough to eat and enough clothes and and get an education, etc., and then you can you know you can see them again in in a few months' time. So there's various ways that they do it. You know, some may be forcefully taken as well. Or certainly in, in the chaos of, of, of evacuating or 
may not evacuating, but sorting or filtering Ukrainian citizens out, and some of the men get filtered into one part of the system, potentially being um, Ukrainian police or army or whatever. And then the the mother gets sent somewhere else, and then the children are just left abandoned, and then they get picked up and sent to Russia uh, and end up in a camp. So th- there's various ways that, that that this has been done. It's it's a huge systematic industrial process, and as as I said earlier, it's continuing. Um, I just want to, if I can, I just really want to flick back quickly to Putin and his trip to Mariupol and and what this all means, and and you know him posturing at the front. After Mariupol, he then went to Rostov and Don of City in Russia and had a briefings with his top general, uh, Gerasimov, about what's going on in the front. As Dom said, he didn't go to the front line. He didn't do the, f- the whole front line thing as Zelensky's done. But I think, I think this is a, a big step for Putin. He did go to Mariupol, which isn't too far from the front line. There have been reports of explosions there in the last month or two. So it's not entirely out of the danger zone. And also, I think we've come to a juncture now where Putin was in an incredibly uh, sullen, isolated spot about six months ago. He, his, his, he was very, he had a very small public presence. It may be popping up once or twice a, a week to for a tele a video conference. Now he's he's you know he's doing a lot more public engagement. He's he's meeting with a whole range of different people. He, he's going out to Mariupol, etc. And there was a really underreported and really interesting meeting of Russian oligarchs and billionaires on Thursday in the Kremlin, or near the Kremlin, a hotel near the Kremlin, which Putin went to and he spoke to them for like two and a half hours, a speech and then a Q&A session. And Kremlin insiders off that said that they had not seen P- Putin as cheerful as he was during this, this session. Uh, he was making jokes, uh, he was laughing, all this sort of thing. And I, and I, you know, having watched him for so long in the last, very closely in the last year and before that, I really think that he now feels, and this is the really important thing, he now feels that with Xi coming on side, with the Russian front line stabilising, with the Russian economy, which had been predicted to shrink by 12%, only dropping by about 2%, he really feels like he's getting, uh, uh, his, you know, he's imposing himself more thoroughly. Things are looking up for, for Russia and, and his forces. That's a terrifying prospect, obviously, but I think that is what we're seeing. And this visit by Xi is just so, so important to him. And I, th- and I think it's all about this. That's really fascinating. I mean, James, earlier you said you expect big news to come from this visit. Do we have any sense, any inkling of, 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 what, of what might happen? Or are we still just waiting for, for, the, for the two main men to speak? To speak. Yeah, so the... Well, I've just been watching actually on the, on the Kremlin tele- Telegram feed the video of Xi and Putin meeting and shaking hands. So... It's happening now. It's happening as, as we... And so the timetable is Xi turned up this morning. He's talking to Putin on a personal, in a personal capacity now for the rest of the afternoon. They're going to have dinner. And then the real official negotiations happen tomorrow and offer there'll be a statement and possibly even a, a press conference. So incredible stuff. I don't know if I would expect anything concrete like we're going to supply, you know, Xi to say we're going to supply weapons to Russia. I don't think that's going to happen. But I think there's going to be a lot of nuance in a joint communique at the end. And I think we're really now seeing potentially the spread of this conflict and the hardening of lines along Russia-China axis versus the West. We, you know, Obviously, we've been seeing those 
for a while, but I think this is really going to be a defining couple of days in, in, in for the next few years. James, do you think there's anything to be read into the comments by Xi ahead of the summit when he said, quote, China and Russia are committed to no alliance, no confrontation and not targeting any third party in developing our ties? Unquote. The no confrontation bit, fine, take that out. Not targeting any third party, I thought was interesting. But the, the bit about China and Russia are committed to no alliance. They're talking about this new era and what have you. But I mean, he's, he put that down in print, committed to no alliance. Am I reading too much into that? Or is, or is that she trying to give himself a bit of bit of wiggle room? I, I'd have thought he needs a bit of wiggle room for sure. And I, and I think, I think with all these things, we can overread into something like that. I mean, they're they're all. Re- I mean, what, what does an alliance mean? It can mean so many different things. And they're already China and Russia already head something called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is centered on Central Asia, but also includes focusing on in India now and a sort of wider group. And this is sort of a military economic club, which has been used to by Beijing to expand its influence in Central Asia. Um, so, I mean, is, is an alliance? They've already got a very sort of close dialogue going on. Um, I don't think we're going to suddenly see a, a literally something called a military alliance between China and Russia, but I don't think that needs to be. I think for, from the Kremlin's perspective, which is which is really where, where I'm what I'm looking at, Putin just needs a verbal show of support from Xi, and possibly a underhand or secret document to supply. I don't know whether it be non-military aid, or we've 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 heard we've we've seen and written about potentially lethal military aid, etc., etc. So I, I think this is really what 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 we're looking at, and the fact that G's even there is just incredible. And one final one for me, please. James Cleverly, Britain's foreign secretary, was in Kazakhstan over the last few days. Kazakhstan, we know, has a a close but but not trouble-free relationship with Russia. What should we read into that? And do you think Cleverly would have known the ICC were about to um, take this action against Putin? And if so, do you think he would be looking for some kind of support from Kazakhstan in case, like I say, in case Putin were to visit Kazakhstan? Were there, is there anything he could offer Kazakhstan to try and get them into the the West orbit, if you like, if it's not too clunky a term. So, yeah, I mean, good question. But the Kansas is not a signatory of this ICC, the Rome Treaty, which governs the ICC. So that no, I mean, if they if they wanted to get closer to to the West, this would be a great start. Yeah, my, well, it would be incredible. Yeah, if if Putin's on the on the list, and then and now Kazakhstan sign up to it, that would be an incredible statement from Kanzon. I don't expect that any times. I think Cleverly was in town really for Brexit for Brexit stuff. This Tory government's desperate to get a good headline about Brexit and it needs a good deal. For example, and we're going slightly off topic here, but it, it it's it's done deals with Uzbekistan and Tajikistan to give thousands of or hundreds of visas to to Labour to to send over to pick soft fruit in Britain because the European the Eastern Europeans are not coming over anymore. So, so, and so, so there are sort of opportunities for, for for this government to do something in Central Asia. As far as the Ukraine-Russia question is concerned, with Kazakhstan, uh, Cleverly's visit came two weeks after Blinken was there, the U.S. Secretary of State, 
And I think the West, and I've said this before in this podcast, I think the West is really worried that with Xi and China clearly coming on side now with the Kremlin, that the influence that China and Beijing have around the world and in Central Asia, etc., is so big through its economic influence, business influence, etc. It's so big that they may be able to sway these uh, mid and smaller ranking countries to also come behind the Kremlin. So, yeah, Cleverly was in town. I'm sure he was delivering a number of different messages from Brexit to warnings about not following China into supporting the Kremlin. Well, thank you very much, James and Dom. Any final updates or questions from either of you? Just one update from me, just to make note. So March the 3rd, a couple of weeks ago now, authorities in Russian-controlled part of Zaporizhia Oblast, they declared that Melitopol, which is occupied, occupied city of Melitopol, is the new Oblast capital. So the head of Zaporizhia Oblast, or the Russian-installed head of the Oblast, Yevgeny Belitsky, he said that this was only going to be a temporary measure until the city of Zaporizhia was controlled by Russia. Now, Zaporizhia, you'll remember, is one of the four oblasts Putin claimed to have annexed as part of the um, that referendum on, on in September last year. Russia has never occupied Zaporizhia city. It's big, 700,000 people. It's still 35-odd Ks from the front line, so Russia's not going to get there anytime soon, if ever. And th- this, this idea that Russia have now said, well, we... We've annexed the region. That's now part of Russia. <laughs> but firstly, I mean, they don't own, the, they haven't got the land. And they've moved the capital from, from Zaporizhia to, uh, to Melitopol. So I think this is Russia acknowledging that they are unlikely to, to move any further towards the capital. Probably acknowledging they're unlikely to move anywhere fast, uh, anywhere, any, any time soon. And I just wonder if they are now settling down for to try and hold the line as it is in, in the advance of any future diplomacy and what have you. But I thought that was notable that in this area that they, they claim to have liberated and made part of Russia. It's such a part of Russia they've had to move the capital from it. Thank you very much, Dom. Well, can I just ask you both for your final thoughts? James Kilner, what will you be looking at? Would you like to summarise maybe some of the things you've mentioned? And what will you be looking at over the next few days? Well, I think it's definitely Xi in Moscow. I think that's absolutely the biggest story, one of the big stories in the world at the moment. Like I said, I don't expect any official statements today, but certainly tomorrow there's the official negotiations and there should be a communique after that, possibly even a press conference. Let's see how far Xi goes with his support for the Kremlin. We've seen a lot of written words in the build-up, and then there's certainly going to there's certainly a lot of momentum to 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 really a, a really strong China Russia communique coming out, and I think that's going to make people very nervous in Kiev, London, and uh, Washington. Thank you, James. And to finish, Tom Nichols. Yeah, well, following on from James, I mean, we are told that that she is going to talk by phone to President Zelensky after the visit to Moscow. And that, I'm sure, we'll, we will hear more of. And, and, and I'm, I'm expecting the language there will still be very diplomatic. I can't imagine the Ukrainians will be very pointed in, their, in any criticism of China. But I think it will be much more down the, down the middle. won't be anywhere near as gushing as the, the comments we've heard so far or anything that's likely to come out many, uh, from any joint press conference. So I think that will be telling this, this conversation between... Uh, China and and the leaders leaders of China and Ukraine direct and I think we we'll, we will hear 
a lot more of that and we'll be able to draw conclusions there. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.